Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Let's read verses 1 through 5 for context, and let's ask the Lord for his help and his blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity you've given us to be together in your word and in prayer. We pray that you would open your word to our understanding and that you would transform our our lives, Lord, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your blessed Son. Thank you for your sheep and for the pastures of your word that you provide. Lead us, Lord, now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have just come through the end of chapter 8, and uh, we've spent several weeks in that last section from verse 31 to 39, looking at the super invincibility of God's people, the elect. And the, the fundamental truth that we learned is that if God is for us, or rather, since God is for us, who can be against us? And what can be against us in any meaningful way? Who can bring a charge against the elect? Who can condemn the elect? Who can separate the elect from the everlasting love of God? And the answer, of course, is no one and nothing. And that has been true throughout the ages for all of God's people. The church is triumphant because Christ is the conqueror, and we are conquerors through him. And I trust that you have been blessed as I have as we meditate on these wonderful truths of the eternal security of our salvation in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if he has brought you into union with himself and evidenced it through a faith that he has given you to believe that word, then know for certain that he will bring you all the way to final glory. You will never be lost. Yes, you will stumble, and I will stumble, but by God's grace, he upholds us by his righteous right hand, and we keep walking with him. Now, we come to chapter 9, and Paul begins to talk about grief and about the nation of Israel. And you might scratch your head when you transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9 and say, what exactly is the connection there, Paul? Is this a parenthetical thought that Paul is offering that's unrelated to the rest of the letter? And we have to remember that Paul doesn't do things like that, does he? Paul is a masterful teacher of the Word of God and Paul has been dealing with objections, hasn't he? Most recently in Romans 8, that section, verses 31 to 39, we know that he anticipated several objections, and that's why he poses those questions, and then he answers them. But that's been Paul's pattern throughout the letter. He did this in chapter 3, chapter 4, and then chapter 6, 7, and 8. Look back at those texts when you meditate on the Word, and look at the questions that he raises He's always anticipating objections, as a good teacher does, and then he addresses them with the Word of God. Now, Paul, after finishing chapter 8, still knows several things that are in his mind and that he needs to address. He knows that the Jews, his fellow countrymen, his kinsmen, still think that they are safe because they consider themselves to be the people of God. They don't see themselves necessarily in peril of eternal damnation. They 
claim the privileges of God that God gave to them as a nation. He gave them his word principally. He gave them things related to the word, like circumcision as a sign of the covenant. He gave Abraham as their father. He gave many blessings, the priesthood and all the ordinances, the service of the Lord. And the thought is, well, if God's people will never be separated from the love of God, as we just learned in Romans chapter 8, and they are the covenant people of God, then they're safe. They can never be divided from God's love. And Paul wants any false hopes of those who are trusting in their privileges and in their association with God and who are trying to enter the kingdom of God on their own and through their own way rather than through God's prescribed way. He wants to put those false hopes down and teach what the truth is and reaffirm the truth he's been teaching from the beginning of this letter. He also knows that the Jews, by and large, didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. The Jews have been antagonistic to Paul uh, all along since he was converted and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they perceived him, frankly, as a traitor, as somebody who turned against his own people and that he was a troublemaker with his own nation. And so Paul wants his brethren to know He's telling the truth. He's not lying. And he wants them to know the true way of salvation. Paul also knows that the unbelieving Jews are still not satisfied with the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's already presented to this point and that they still have open questions. And Paul, this is important to see, he doesn't just dismiss his opponents. What you see time and time again is that he graciously points them to the scriptures. He's patiently reasoning with them from the scriptures and urging them to yield to God's way of salvation. That's his strategy. He doesn't put them down. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't condemn them. He teaches them and he prays for them. And as we're going to see today, he weeps over them. He grieves over them when they don't believe. And then also Paul knew that the Jews wrongly thought that Paul hated them, that he was against them. So he starts this section by really bearing his heart to them and showing that he loves them deeply. The words that we're going to read this morning cannot evidence anything other than a heart of love for his brethren. So Paul is going to address all these concerns in Romans chapter 9 by way of anticipation as has been his pattern. And the way he's going to do it is by demonstrating that his gospel is no new gospel at all, but is in fact the gospel of God. It is God's way of salvation all along, even back to the beginning of the Jewish nation, Abraham, who is their father. In other words, God has always saved his people in the same way throughout history. And it's important to note that Paul never loses his main theme in the book of Romans. His main theme is justification by grace through faith in Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's revealed salvation. So he's going to demonstrate the same with the Jews, his countrymen. And that's what we see in Romans 9, 10, and 11. These next three chapters are a grouping. They're a logical grouping, and they should be considered as such. And Paul is going to demonstrate in these chapters a historical account of the true faith. In other words, pointing backward to how God has dealt with Israel in the past in order to make his case. I want you to just listen to some of the references that Paul makes in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that would certainly ring clear and true in the ears of his listeners, these kinsmen according to the flesh, his brethren. In chapter 9, he's going to speak about Israel, about Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. He's going to speak of Moses and Pharaoh. He's going to quote from the prophet Hosea, Isaiah, and he's going to speak about Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Abraham and Lot. 
In chapter 10, he's going to speak further of Israel, and he's going to go on to quote Moses and Isaiah again, and the prophet Nahum, and he's going to quote King David from the Psalms. In chapter 11, he's going to continue speaking of Israel and mention Abraham again and the tribe of Benjamin. And he's going to quote Elijah and Isaiah yet again and David and Jeremiah and Job. All these figures from the Old Testament that were so familiar to them. See, these are historical chapters showing that God's method of salvation has always been the same. His righteousness, as he's going to teach us, has always been established by grace through faith. Faith in the Lord. And why would that be important to establish? Well, because if we understand how God has operated in the past, then that tells us how God operates in the present and how he's going to operate in the future. Why? Because God does not change. He is always the same. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And so what Paul is going to do in Romans 9, 10, and 11 falls under the heading of what's called theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. Theo in Greek is the word for God. Dici is related to the Greek word vikeos, or uh, vikeos, which is righteousness or justice. So it's the justice of God or the justification of God's ways. That's what this idea of theodicy is. It's a a description of God's faithfulness. Everything that he does is right. No one can rightly accuse the Lord because he's just and true. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. We saw that back in Romans chapter 3. And in fact, I'd like to go there with you for just a moment. Just turn a few pages over to Romans 3. Listen to... Um, how Paul previewed theodicy for us in Romans 3. He starts by saying, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much, in every way, chiefly because to them, that is to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God, that is the word of God. For what if some did not believe? What if some of the Jews did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And his answer is, certainly not. In fact, it's God forbid, it's miyenote, it's the strongest negative that you could make in the Greek. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your word, speaking to the Lord, and may overcome when you are judged. So the ways of the Lord are right. They always have been, and they always will be. And Paul will never back down from that position. And brothers and sisters, neither must we. The Lord is always right in all his ways, even when we can't, and especially when we can't understand his way. So chapters 9 through 11, you could think of as an expansion of the beginning of Romans 3, this idea of theodicy. He's just going to flesh that up, that out for us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 and show us how the ways of God are always right. They've always been right with Israel. Just as Romans 8, we saw was an expansion of Romans 5, dealing with all the benefits of justification. So this is the pattern that the Apostle Paul uses when he writes. He previews and then he expands on his themes to make sure that there is good understanding. There are, of course, other issues that Paul is going to touch on in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that I would classify as sub-issues under the heading of theodicy. Other issues that are important to deal with, such as these questions. Who are the real people of God? These chapters are really going to address that question. Who are the people to whom salvation comes? Who are the true children and the descendants of Israel? Are all the children of Abraham his true descendants? When Israel is spoken of, is it spoken of as the ethnic, physical nation as a whole? And if the Jews, as the nation, are the true people of God, here's a question. Why are they rejecting this message of their salvation? Especially since they, being privileged with the word of God, would be most familiar with the word of all the peoples of the earth. And how can this gospel work effectively toward a group when so many 
have rejected it and continue to reject it to this day. Is God's word ineffective? Another question, why is Israel partially blinded now? We're going to see that when we get to Romans chapter 11. Why is there a partial blindness? And will God restore Israel's blindness so that they can see in the future? Has God set aside Israel temporarily with a full intention of restoring them back at some point in the future? And there are some who would say absolutely yes. In fact, the whole nation is going to be saved at some point in the future. Or are they set aside permanently? Has God canceled his promises to Israel in favor of the church? And a valid concern that would follow from that question is, if God has permanently set aside Israel as a nation, after all the promises that he made to them, then what assurances has the church that after all the promises he's made to us, God will not set us aside at some point in the future? What exactly is the relationship between Israel and the church? Has the church simply replaced Israel? Is the Gentile church the new Israel of God? Or are Israel and the church separate? That's another question that has been explored. And does God even have different plans of salvation for the nation of Israel as compared with the church? Those are difficult questions that people have wrestled with, and I'm looking forward to tackling them with you in these chapters. And I just want to give you a little preview of where we're going here in these chapters. What Paul is going to teach uh, throughout this section is this. God's invitation is still being extended to the Jews. It has never stopped being extended to them, in fact, and will never stop until the Lord returns in his second advent. They've never been completely blinded or set aside. And the Lord is faithful. He will by no means say, I'm done with the Jews. They are his people. Even though his wrath burns against all unbelievers, and that includes the Jewish, unbelieving Jewish nation, even in his wrath, the Lord has compassion for many, many. And so does Paul. And so must we. Of course, you can't get to Romans 9 without somebody saying, isn't that the famous chapter on predestination and election? And it certainly has quite a bit to say about predestination and election, as do many other books of the Bible <laughs> throughout the scriptures. But just for example, take Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For the children not yet being born, this is a reference to uh, Jacob and Esau, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The younger is preferred to the older. And so you see the topic of election or predestination, but it's not first raised in Romans 9, is it? We just saw it in Romans 8. At the end of Romans 8, in the golden chain of salvation, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also, what? Predestined. He predestined, he elected to be conformed to the image of his son. So again, this is another theme that Paul has teased out for us, and he is going to expand it for us in Romans 9 um, and 10 and 11. Let's start together with verse 1 of Romans 9. And my intention is to just cover the first three verses today. And then we'll save verses 4 and 5 for next time. There's just, there's a lot here. Paul starts by saying, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Each one of these phrases is important to consider as we read the Word of God. He starts by saying, I tell the truth in Christ. He's beginning with a positive affirmation that he's telling the truth. And it's critical that he says, in Christ, in Christ, because what he's effectively doing is calling Jesus Christ as his witness. He is saying, I am one who is in union with Christ and he with me. And I'm calling him to testify that what I'm about to say is true. Or 
He's saying, I'm speaking as a, a Christian who is accountable to God in Christ for every word that I speak. Paul knew the weight that God gave to the importance of truth-telling. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 12 said, men will give an account in the day of judgment of every idle word that they speak, whether in their hearts or verbally in their mouth. The Lord will uh, call for an account of every word spoken. And Paul in the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 9, said, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So Paul starts by saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ. And then he gives the negative. Negatively, I'm not lying. I'm not deceiving anybody. I'm not withholding any truth necessary to the truth. I'm only going to speak what is true and right. And I'm going to do that in the sight of God himself. And then he appeals to his conscience, which he says bears him witness. Right, And this is familiar language from Romans 8 when we learn that the Holy Spirit bears us witness in regards to prayer, the Holy Spirit bearing witness. And Paul uses the present active participle here, which is another way of saying this is a constant bearing witness that the Spirit is doing for him. He is always bearing me witness. And then he adds these most important words. In the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Because the consciences of men are not necessarily trustworthy. Not necessarily trustworthy. And someone might say that they are telling the truth, but in fact lie, because their conscience is not a reliable witness to the truth. Let me show you what I mean by this. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1 together. Titus chapter 1. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul is speaking this in the context of idol talkers and deceivers from verse 10, especially those of the circumcision. These are Judaizers who are teaching that men must keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul, I want you to notice in verse 15, he links defilement with unbelief, doesn't he? Those who are unbelieving are defiled. That is, they are contaminated. They're polluted where? from within, in their innermost being, their inner person is defiled. In other words, all those who don't believe the Lord and his Christ, the true message of salvation, they're defiled in their nature, in their hearts. And for anyone who is fundamentally defiled, what this text is teaching is that everything proceeding from that person's heart is also defiled. Everything. In their inner person, their thought life, their consciences, their desires, it's all defiled. It's polluted in God's eyes. And their outer person is thoroughly tainted as well. That is, their words and their deeds. It all proceeds from an evil heart of unbelief. That doesn't mean that people can't say nice things who aren't believers or do quote-unquote good deeds in the eyes of men, but from the eyes of God, they, it's all hypocrisy. The word conscience is a word that means with knowledge, with knowledge. It's the God-given alarm system that he's put into every one of us that evaluates every thought that comes into our minds and sees how it compares with the word of God. And if what we are thinking violates the word of God, it sounds as an alarm system to let us know that we've crossed the line. And Paul is saying that in the unbeliever, not only are his thoughts polluted, but even this alarm system is contaminated and doesn't function properly. Why? Because everything that proceeds from the defiled heart is tainted as well. So that's why an unbeliever could say that he could testify he's going to speak the truth, but in fact lie because his alarm system doesn't yell at him anymore. And you say, how does that happen? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 gives us a really good insight on this. 
1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You know what happens when a person ignores their God-given alarm system when it sounds repeatedly and they continually ignore it? It becomes desensitized. They stop hearing it over time because their conscience becomes seared with a hot iron. This is the idea that Paul gave in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talked about the futility of the minds of the unbelieving Gentiles and how because of the blindness of their heart, they're past feeling. They're not able to feel properly anymore because their hearts are darkened and desensitized through repeated um, ignoring of the Word of God. So it's key to understand here that Paul, when he calls his conscience to witness, is calling that conscience to witness in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, meaning that he's been born again that the Spirit of God has redeemed him and cleansed him from within, from the heart, so that now everything that proceeds from that heart is pure, is pure, including his conscience. He has the mind of Christ. He's under the control of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to speak only what is true. And you might be asking at this point, why is Paul making such an issue of just telling the truth? Well, Paul seems to be kind of going to the extent of taking an oath here because he knows that the unbelieving Jews who are hearing him don't believe him or trust him. They think that he is, frankly, anti-Semitic, that he's a Jew hater, and that he's a traitor to his people. And why? Because Paul's given kind of a, a, a true, but they would argue a harsh assessment of their condition. Look back at Romans chapter 2 with me. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. This is addressing his Jewish audience and that these are inexcusable really at the beginning of the chapter, whoever who, those who judge, because in what they judge others about, they condemn themselves because they themselves practice the same things. They're hypocrites. And then you come down to verse 5, and he says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, an unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Come to verse 17 of chapter 2. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. The form of knowledge. You, therefore, verse 21, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, who hate idols, do you rob temples or do you commit sacrilege? Do you mix the holy with the profane and treat it all the same? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jews, as it is written. And then he goes on to say, if you think that you're a Jew... Look at verse 28 and verse 29. You're not one if you're just one outwardly. The true Jews are those who are ones inwardly, who've been circumcised not just in the flesh, but in the heart. The Spirit of God has done a work to cut away the hardness of your heart that you may believe the Lord and be saved. So these are hard things to hear from an unbelieving Jewish audience's perspective, but they're true, aren't they? Paul is accurate in his assessment of them. They just don't like it. And you know, there's an interesting note here for us to take away. Sometimes confrontation and calling somebody to repent is misconstrued as hatred toward them. It's misconstrued 
as unloving. They may call you a bigot. They may call you prejudiced or unloving if you tell somebody that their way of religion is wrong or that they're going to spend an eternity in torment if they don't repent and trust in Christ. If, if I don't just see things your way, they would say, right? But think about this. If somebody's life is truly in danger and you warn them to move out of that position of danger into a position of safety, is that unloving? No, that's the most loving thing that you can do for them. And so the heart is really what matters in all of this. What's the motivation? Is it that I want the welfare of this other person or am I trying to destroy them? Paul is certainly not trying to destroy them. He loves them and he's bearing his heart toward them. Paul warned them those times I shared with you in Romans 2, um, but he's also going to warn them again. He, he doesn't just stop with one warning, and I really appreciate that he continues to urge them and to appeal to them. Come to chapter 9, verse 30. Uh, verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Who is the him? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is that rock. And those who are offended at him trip on him. But those who believe him stake their lives upon him and build upon him on a solid, the solid foundation. So he's going to warn them. He's going to show them the peril of standing in the position of works righteousness, which will land them in eternal torment. And then look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then look down at verse 16. But they have not all believed or obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Come down to verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's not nice to hear, but it's what they need to hear in order to repent. Chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them, the Jews, a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Those are harsh words, but these are the words of the Lord toward these unbelieving Jews. And you can see why Paul is warning them and why he's grieved that they don't believe the message by and large. <clears throat> the unbelieving Jews would just hear Paul in all of this saying, Paul, you just hate the Jews. You just don't have any tolerance for the Jews. You used to be respectable, but you've, you've turned tail and you have been, become a traitor to your own people. Paul has a history of antagonism, as we know, from the Jews. We, we traced some of that a few weeks ago when we looked at the, the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapters 13 and 14 uh, through Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, and we saw that he was even beaten and left for dead, but the Lord raised him up. Paul, during his, all his missionary journeys, all three of them, he was not only rejected in many places in terms of what he was teaching, but he was physically assaulted many times. He says that from the Jews, he received 39 beatings, lashes, on five separate occasions. In Acts chapter 21, if you'll 
Turn there with me just for a moment. Acts chapter 21. Paul is uh, ending his third missionary journey, and he's returning to Jerusalem. And picking up in verse 27, we find that he meets with some Jews from Asia. And look what verse 27 says. Now, when the seven days uh, were almost ended, that's relating to a purification, a, a Jewish rite that Paul himself took a part of, took part of to show that he is not anti-Jewish. Seeing him in the temple, these Jews from Asia stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against, now notice these three things, against the people, the law, and this place. That is against the nation of the Jews, the law of the Jews, the law of God, and this place, the temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And they said that because they saw Trophimus, who is a, a Gentile with him, and they supposed that he brought him into the temple in an unlawful area. But of course, he, he hadn't. They were just using that to slander and accuse him. So they are seeking to arrest him and to kill him ultimately. The, the same pattern that we saw with our Lord Jesus Christ is happening and unfolding with the Apostle Paul. Come to Acts chapter 24. And in Acts 24, you have the, an account of the Jews hiring a man named Tertullus to represent their case as a lawyer before the governor, whose name is Felix. And here's how Tertullus falsely accuses Paul. Acts 24, verse 5. For we have found... This man, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So he's seen clearly as a seditionist, one who is a leader of rebellion against the Jewish people and also as one who profanes the temple that he has no regard for the sanctity of God's temple. And while it is true that Paul is the famed apostle to the Gentiles, we must not forget that he himself is a Jew, speaking, by birth. And Paul has not abandoned his own people. He still very much has a heart for them. So Paul knows that they think that he hates them, which is not true. But the other reason Paul seems to take an oath here is he knows that the unbelieving Jews, as I said before, are not satisfied with Paul's teaching of salvation to this point in the letter. And they still have some questions. Paul, what about the Jews? Where is there room for the Jewish nation inside of your model of salvation? And it seems that the word of God is ineffective toward us. And we, that's the word that Paul, in fact, anticipated in Romans 9 when you look at verse uh, 6, Romans 9, 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. So there's his anticipa anticipation of their objection that the word of God is just not effective toward him. Or the other possibility in the unbelieving Jewish mind is if God's word is effective, then Jesus simply is not the Messiah. He couldn't have been. We're still waiting for our Messiah. And that is the position that the majority of Jews still are in today. So Paul is calling Christ and he's calling his Holy Spirit cleansed conscience to witness to these Jews that he's no anti-Semite, but that he really loves them. And the first thing he's going to do to prove that is he's going to bear his heart to them. He's going to offer his heart to them. Listen how he does this in verse 2 of Romans 9. He says, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow, great heaviness is the sense of the word, and a continual grief. And the word for grief is the word that has a root that means to be plunged into. So Paul is saying, I have a continual consuming heaviness and a sense of being plunged into grief in my heart over my brethren. And you say, in what sense, Paul, why such grief? Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul doesn't say, I wish, but I could wish. It's an imperfect tense. 
which is a way of saying, I could keep on wishing. This is a repetitious thing that he's describing. I could keep on wishing or praying that I myself were accursed. The word there is anathema. Anathema, and that probably is familiar to you from the book of Galatians in chapter 1, where we hear this word anathema. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which has been preached, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, which is a word that means damned, condemned. It literally is, I found this interesting, it's a word that means, it refers to a thing that is set up. The word in Greek means to set up or stand up. And the idea is, it's related to offerings that were devoted to God. They were put up in some conspicuous place, given over to him. And here's the key to this idea, without the possibility of redeeming that offering that was given to the Lord. It was just given to to God, and that was it. It was consigned to die as a votive offering to the Lord. And that is really from Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28, concerning the laws of offerings devoted to God. They were not able to be redeemed. So Paul, what he's saying here, this is significant language. He's saying he could wish himself a person doomed to destruction. And then he says, from Christ. The preposition is put away from Christ, separated from Christ, or like cut off from Christ. So he's not just talking about a physical death, but he's talking about an eternal death. I could wish I myself were cut off from Christ for my brethren. And he uses the preposition there, for my brethren, that we saw earlier in Romans 8, where Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, for us, meaning in the place of us. That's what Paul is saying here. This is substitutionary language. Paul is saying, I wish I could offer myself to the Lord as a substitutionary sacrifice where I would be cut off from Christ for my brethren, for them. Who are your brothers, Paul? He says, my countrymen, according to the flesh. That is my kinsmen, my relatives, those who are related by birth and blood, ethnic Jews, just like himself. So Paul is This is extremely significant. He's saying, I'm grieved deeply over my unsaved Jewish brothers. And he's saying, if there were a way that he could renounce even his salvation in Christ, so that he would be cut off forever and all of his Jewish brethren could be saved in his place, he would do it. He would do it. And why that's so particularly impactful is based on what he just got done teaching us in Romans 8, that salvation can never be lost. Paul's saying, I'd be willing to break my marriage with Christ, my, my relationship with him, my salvation with him, if I can ensure the salvation of my earthly brothers. He knows that he can't do it. That's why he says, I could keep on wishing. He knows he can't, but it's a repeated desire in his life, and that's what gives him so much grief. He has the heart of a true mediator, doesn't he? This really harkens back to the account of Moses with the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32. Um, Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. What happened with the children of Israel while he was away? They were at play, right, in a sinful way. They fashioned with Aaron's help the golden calf. They even attributed the name of the calf to the Lord, calling the calf this dumb idol, Yahweh, God, eternal God, offending him greatly. And as Moses comes back down from the mountain, the Lord tells him, I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses calls for the Levites and Well, he calls it an open call. He says, anyone who's with the Lord, come on my side. And all the Levites respond, those from his family. And they come and they stand with him and he commands them to literally kill their brethren who are involved in this idolatrous sin and sexual immorality. And 3,000 of Israel are killed that day. 
And Moses goes to God and he pleads for those who are still alive. And here's what Moses says in Exodus 32 concerning these people, speaking of the heart of a mediator. Verse 31 of chapter 32, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. What a statement. Blot me out so that they would live and not die. There's the substitutionary idea. Moses had the heart of a mediator. That might remind us also of Judah when he is um, he has not yet revealed himself as the long-lost brother to his brethren, and he is interceding for I'm sorry, Judah, when he comes to Joseph, who's not revealed himself as the long-lost brother, forgive me, and Judah, Judah is interceding for Benjamin before Joseph, willing to sell himself as a slave so that Benjamin can go home free to his father. Or it might remind, might remind us of David with his son Absalom after he died. And in 2 Samuel 18, we hear David's lament. He's crying, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. All of these men of God had this heart of love for their kin. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 136 said, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Jeremiah in chapter 9 of his writing, verse 1 said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah, again, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 48 and 49, he says, My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption. This is an incredible picture, and, and the imagery is astounding. I, I don't have enough tears to cry the rivers that I wish to cry for my brethren because of their idolatry and unbelief and ultimately their exile from the land of Israel. And you say, how could Jeremiah weep so much for his people? He was known, after all, as the weeping prophet, right? How could he weep so much for his people? And I found this insight in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. Lamentations 1, 12. Jeremiah says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has afflicted or inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. So it's the Lord who inflicts this sense of deep grief over his people, in the hearts of his people, for his people, those who are unbelieving. Paul says, I could keep on wishing myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, but he knows that he can't do it. He knows he can for two reasons. One, when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, he described the children of Israel who lived from Moses' day all the way to his day, the present day when he wrote. And he said this, but their minds were blinded, the minds of the unbelieving Jews. <clears throat> for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So this is not a, a problem that Paul can fix. This is a judicial blindness from God, and it's really toward their Messiah. They, they can't see who their Messiah is. Christ himself must take away that veil by turning sinners to himself, and then they can see. He also knows that he can't substitute as a sacrifice because no sinner can substitute as a sacrifice for sinners. No sinner can stand in the place of another sinner. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Death. Every sinner must pay for their own sin if they don't accept God's way of salvation, which is that Christ has paid for your sins. He can't stand in the place of another sinner because he's got his own sins to deal with. There is only one just man who ever lived, and he alone is qualified to stand in the place of sinners. Listen to how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The just for the unjust. Jesus Christ, the righteous alone, can stand in the place of sinful men. And Christ alone became accursed by God for his brethren. He actually became accursed for his brethren. Galatians 3.13, this, this was our call to worship this morning. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's a reference to the cross. Jesus alone stands in the place of ruined sinners, pleading for them by his blood and completely justifying everyone who trusts in him for their salvation. And guess what Jesus' heart is like for his brethren, according to the flesh? We looked at some of those examples of the Old Testament saints. What about Jesus' heart for his brethren, according to the flesh, who don't believe? Listen to Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and following. This is as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem at the time of the triumphal entry. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus Christ wept over the unbelieving in the Jewish nation because they didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize him as their Messiah, even though he was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament scriptures. And even the precise time that he would come and be born, it was all prophesied accurately in the Old Testament. Yes, they would shout, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now at the triumphal entry. But they didn't realize the kind of king that he was. They were looking for, him for freedom from political oppression from Rome, not freedom from the power and the penalty of their sins and the wrath of God that was upon them because of their sin. That wasn't interesting to them. That wasn't a perceived need of theirs. And so they completely miss that he is a spiritual savior, not a physical king. And Jesus says, your enemies, because of your unbelief, are going to level the city and you to the ground. And that happened, brothers and sisters. That happened in, in 70 AD when the Romans leveled Jerusalem. So Paul is just one in the long line of godly men who all share the very heart of God, of Jesus Christ, for his unbelieving brothers. So Paul clearly is bearing his heart here to his brethren. But I want to ask this question. Why do you think that Paul is doing this? Is Paul bearing his heart so that we would think great of Paul? That we would make much of Paul? Or that we would make much of the God of Paul? See, I believe Paul wants us to know a couple of things in this passage here. He wants us to know that his grief is particularly deep for his kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's clear about that. Why? Because they, above all the people of the earth, were privileged to be in the proximity of God and to have his very word. They should have known the time of their visitation. They, above all. These were the Israelites to whom was the adoption and the giving of the law and the covenants and all the promises. They should have known and the biblical axiom is the more light that God gives to a people, the more responsible they are for that light to respond to it correctly. Those who hear the truth and reject the truth are in danger of more severe punishment than those who do not hear the truth or as much truth. That's just a clear axiom from Scripture. So Paul is grieved in his heart over the fact that here is a people who has been given so much light and yet their hearts are closed and they will not hear. But I think Paul also wants to demonstrate what the heart of Christ can do for all of us who are true believers in Christ. 
This is what the heart of God can do for all of us. I, I really see Paul's testimony here as an important commentary on the heart of every true believer. This is what I mean. We as Christians, we rejoice, don't we, when um, unbelievers repent and they come to faith in Christ? Um, we've seen that even here in this church, and it's been a wonderful time of rejoicing in the body. But when those who hear the word reject the word, we grieve for them, don't we? There is a sadness, there is a deep sadness in our hearts when, that when people who hear about the only way of salvation turn away from it and pronounce condemnation upon themselves. Did we always have that heart for the lost? I certainly haven't. And I'm praying that God would continue to develop that heart in me because I feel callous so often. But this is the heart that God develops in all his children over time. This is a supernatural love that God gives to his people. And I'm talking about for the non-saved, for, for those who are in that position of wrath. What is the heart of our Lord toward those who are wicked? Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? and not that he should turn from his ways and live. And then he affirms it in verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's a call to repentance. Don't die. Why would you die? The proud, the proud don't have that heart for the lost. I mean, I was thinking about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 as an example of this. What did he do with regard to his brother, who was a Jew, the tax collector? He was viewed as a traitor to his nation, the tax collector was. The Pharisee, rather than praying for this man that God would open his eyes and he would be saved, actually just condemns the man. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like this filth. You, you could just hear the vitriol in his tone. He condemns others because he feels superior. But brothers and sisters, the humble know that they're not worthy of salvation, right? We know that we were not worthy of God's grace to rescue our souls. And so when we look on others, we don't condemn them. We pray for them. We want them to be saved. We're just beggars who are showing other beggars where to find the bread, right? And the bread is the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. When we experience the grace of God, it just changes the way we look at other sinners. We want the same for them. We want to share the gospel with them. We don't withhold the truth, even though these are hard truths. There's a call to repentance because the wrath of God is on you. Do you realize that? Let's reason with people in love, even if they misperceive it misconstrue it as a hatred toward them. God knows our hearts. We, we call the Lord to witness, can't we? And our consciences, a clean, clear conscience. Lord, help us to do this as you would do it. Give us your heart. Paul is going to express his heart again in chapters 10 and 11. I already read chapter 10, verse 1, that his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. His desire is really that some of them should be saved. You see that in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he became all things to all men in order that he might win some. Some. That's his heart. Lord, use me in any way you can to rescue or any way you will to rescue some. So Paul grieves deeply over his unbelieving kin. But I want you to see this. Paul is never final or without hope in his grief. He's never without hope in his grief. He knows that some will be saved. His confidence is not in his ability to present the gospel, but in the Lord's ability to save. And in his promise that he will save his elect. He will save a remnant, brothers and sisters, that is a group from the ethnic Jews, and from the entire world of the Gentiles, he will save a remnant, and they are his people. He will bring them to salvation. So as we preach the gospel, let us have confidence and assurance in that truth. 
The Lord will save. We don't know who he will save, but let's preach indiscriminately and with urgency and call people to repentance and pray for them that they would, that God would open their hearts. He alone can. And let us have confidence that God will. He is able to save and he will. He delights in saving his people. He has mercy reserved for thousands, for those who love him and who fear him. May the Lord give us all such a heart for the lost. This was really a probing message for me as I was preparing this this week because this is an area, like I say, where I've felt just calloused in my heart. God, soften my heart. Help me to be as you in my heart toward these people that it would stir me to preach the gospel to them. And for those of you who have this heart and this heart is developing in you, I praise the Lord. It's his work alone. This is not natural to the human flesh. This is a work of the spirit of God. We know that we cannot lay down our lives for anyone else, right? In a way that would rescue their souls. But we know one who did. And so our job is just to point them to him. Let's do that this week and going forward by God's grace. Let's ask for his help with that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your wonderful word. Your word um, brings joy to the heart. It, Father, also brings conviction and it, it brings um, a real probing, Lord. Your, your word is surgical. It, um, it probes the thoughts and intents of a human heart. It knows how to, to discern at the deepest level and, and divide between even bone and marrow. Father, there is nothing that is hidden from your sight. And we don't want to be hidden from your sight. We want you to expose us and search us and help us, Lord, to be less like our old selves and more like you. Father, give us this heart, a heart of God that we would love others and love them in this way by showing them the way to eternal life and pleading with them and praying for them, never giving up hope, Lord, knowing that you are able to bring in sinners even up to the 11th hour. There is always hope as long as there is breath and life. Father, may our confidence be in you and in you alone. Help us to be profitable servants. We know that at the end of the day, Lord, we're just doing what you've asked us to do. But help us, Lord, to have an impact for the kingdom of God. Would you be pleased to do that in this church? And in every gospel preaching church in this valley, our brothers and sisters within